This summer, we chose uh, to, to do this series on the life of David, okay? And David is a fairly familiar character in Scripture to many of us, uh, and yet we wanted to dig in, go a little bit deeper, see uh, who this man is and the story of his life. And in general, that's been really fun. Uh, there's this guy, Saul, uh, that was king in the beginning of our text and our journey in the life of David, uh, and um, he was not following God's commandments. Uh, he had fallen from God's favor, and there's this joyful story as David, the shepherd boy, is anointed to be the next king of Israel. We've seen all sorts of pow- incredible things as he defeats Goliath, as he becomes famous and leads the army and all these things, and we've just gotten to celebrate the story of the amazing man. Today is not that sort of day. Today we are in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, and uh, this is the story of David and Bathsheba. And if you've heard the story, uh, it it will, uh, I think we'll have an interesting conversation about what we're experiencing. And if if you've not heard the story, then uh, you're likely unaware that the Bible deals with this sort of material, okay? Uh, This is a fairly graphic story, um, and uh, and it is a tragic one. And so here's the interesting thing. Sometimes I come to speak, and we've got this text, and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is just beautiful. I can't wait to share this with people. And today is so not one of those days, right? Today is one of those days where why, when we planned out this series, did we include this text? And here's why we include this text. Because the reality of each of our lives, the reality of any character that we study in Scripture, is that we are complex people. Uh, No single act and no single characteristic trait uh, defines us in our entirety. And so today we see the dark side of a man named David, a man who will be called the man after God's own heart, a man who will be celebrated for uh, for all of Israel's history, uh, and yet today we see the very dark side. David is now king over Israel. Uh, if, if, you'd, if you go back and read a few chapters before chapter 11 here in 2 Samuel, you'll see all these great victories as they're defeating uh, the other nations that are attacking them. They're winning wars. David is becoming famous uh, worldwide. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, we begin. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Okay, a couple interesting things as, as we begin our text today. Uh, first of all, there's this really like happy bubbly in the spring when kings go off to war beginning, right? Doesn't that sound a little bit odd? And yet that was the culture of the day. Uh, it was very hard to have sustained campaigns during the winter months. And uh, so uh, in, in the winter, less wars were fought. And in the spring, wars began again. Now, it was customary for a king to go and to lead his army into battle. And it wouldn't always happen. There was times when a general would be sent out to lead the armies. But certainly, as we've read in the life of David, it was his practice to lead the army. Even when Saul was king, David was leading the army. And for some reason, we see him breaking, uh, we see a divergence in his behavior. We see him breaking this pattern. He sends his men off to war, and he stays home, lounging on his couch. And, and I wonder if we're supposed to, how much we're supposed to read in to this uh, part of the text. Um, but the narrator does two times in the very first verse indicate 
Usually the kings would go off to war, and yet David remained here in Jerusalem. And so whether or not he was shirking his responsibilities, we certainly see this divergence in behavior uh, that is kind of foreshadowing of what is to come. David is out of his rhythms and routines. Um, He sent not only the Israelite army, uh, but uh, the king's men. This was his elite fighting force that that we've seen in previous chapters. Uh, He sends out everyone. And here he is back in Jerusalem. Verse 2, one evening David got up from his bed and he, walked around, uh, he, and he walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David is not only out with his men uh, fighting uh, where he likely should be, uh, but he finds himself up one night and he witnesses Bathsheba. Now, there's many different ways this story has been told over the years, and I want to dig into it uh, just a little bit. In uh, much of the art that's been created about biblical stories and characters in Scripture over the last centuries, um, Bathsheba is uh, portrayed as a seductress. uh, like seducing the king, right, enticing him into the situation. I don't think we could be any further from the truth of this text by believing that she is at fault in this scenario. Um, In in fact, it was common practice, as I understand it, in the day to bathe on the roof. And of course, there's walls around you so that you cannot be seen. Uh, But when you live in the shadow of the palace, that is not so much the case. Uh, David sees this woman, and she's very beautiful. And uh, so he sends out uh, a messenger, you know, find out who this is. And some will argue that, well, in the text, it never says that Bathsheba resisted. Uh, and, and I think we need to consider uh, that uh, the, the power structure of the day and the fact that Bathsheba was given no voice or no choice. It's not surprising to me that uh, we don't hear her resisting uh, because she had no voice in the situation. Uh, I do not understand her to be the seductress. I do not understand her to be complicit in this text. Uh, I, I hate to bring up things like this in a public setting, uh, but I believe this is a story of sexual assault. I think, I think that's the story that we read here today. And I hate to use terms like that and talk about these sorts of subjects in a public setting, uh, knowing that statistically there are those amongst us that have experienced these sort of things. And so I, I do want to say um, that, that we care deeply about those hurts, and I hope that nothing in the text or nothing that's said today brings on further hurt, uh, but know that this is a community of support and a place of healing and, and hope. And I think to be true to this text and to be true to the story we read today, uh, we need to uh, hear uh, the, the honesty of the text. Uh, this is a very, very dark story of a man who was in power taking advantage of that power uh, and the hurt that it caused. And sadly, the hurt is not over. There's nothing okay about David's action in this text. I can't soften it 
I can't pretend like he is not acting totally out of character and out of selfishness uh, and, and, and harming people in this text. And, you know, it's not only happening uh, here thousands of years ago in the story of David, but these stories continue to play out today. Uh, in fact, I don't know if you've seen in the news uh, right now, um, there's a 66-year-old multimillionaire named Epstein, or, or Epstein, um, and uh, he, uh, with all of his wealth and with all of his power, uh, was, um, was arrested for sexual misconduct and trafficking. Uh, the guy owned private islands and had all the opportunity in the world. And kind of like in the story of David, uh, turned towards selfish ways uh, and was willing to harm and subject people to all sorts of terrible things. And this last week, he died in his prison cell, meaning his trial doesn't go on, and those seeking justice are kind of in this lurch. You see, the story of abuse of power played out in David's time, it played out in the first century, and it plays out today. It's a very real thing. And it is not okay. Now, David, uh, he has done what he has done. He has taken um, Bathsheba to his bed, and she finds out she's pregnant. Now, we know that this is not what David intended. Um, he's in a situation where the decisions that he's made have come to roost, right? Is that a real statement? I, I think that means something. Uh Right? The decisions that he's made are now going to have serious consequence in his life. Have you ever been in that situation? I don't believe you've been in this exact situation, but have you ever, ever been in that place where like the decisions that you've made, uh, are at your doorstep? We've got a serious problem. I think we often have two options. We cover it up or we fess up. Right, And I can only imagine what this story would have looked like if David had taken responsibility for his actions uh, and, and moved forward in that way. Uh, he will not do that. I'm somewhat familiar with that posture in life, though. Uh, I was 15 years old, didn't have a permit yet, uh, but knew how to drive a car, kind of, and knew where the keys to the car was. And mom and dad uh, were, were away. And I uh, decided I'd do my brother a favor and drive him over to a friend's house. And uh, so we got in the car and we took off. And not 10 blocks from the house, I set my arm down on the windowsill uh, there of the door. And I set my arm on a bee uh, that was sitting there. And it didn't sting me yet, but it freaked out underneath me, and I saw it. And see, the thing about being 15 and having very little driving experience is that when you're sitting in the backseat of a car, you can occasionally look at the road, and you can do whatever you want. You can play with a bee or whatever you want to do, right? But when you're the driver, apparently, it takes some attentiveness. Well, I did not realize this, or I just panicked because of the bee, and I'm rolling down the window, and I'm trying to shoo this thing out, uh, and all of a sudden, I feel the car lift off the ground. Uh, as I jumped the curb, uh, drove through like uh, someone's yard, missed a fire hydrant by about a foot, I get stopped on this next street, and of course the front tire is just blown out on the car. And apparently there's a spare tire on cars. Have you guys heard about these things? The spare tire. Uh, I had no clue, and I, and I, knew, I knew I had to get out of here before a neighbor sees what's just happened, right? So I drive the car home, ruin the rim, um, Mom and dad come home, and they say, what happened to the truck? And I said, I have no idea. 
right? I cannot imagine. I told them I, I backed it out to play basketball, but I didn't even notice there was a problem. This is a really weak lie. This is a really weak cover-up, right? Um, so, of course, in the long run, uh, things are found out and there's consequences. Uh, but I can kind of relate uh, to the idea of a cover-up. So, David dives into exactly that, right? Uh, he's not ready to fess up to what he's done. And he's like, I think I can sweep this under the rug. So in verse 6, so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was. Um, his, uh, I'm sorry, how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you come from a military campaign? Why, did you, uh, why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will do no such thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat amongst his master's servants. He did not go home. I want to take a moment to look at the contrast between these two characters, between David and Uriah. We have David who is... uh, uh, potentially shirking his responsibility. He's not going to war with his people. Uh, Instead, he's hanging out on his rooftop and seducing or uh, um, harming uh, women in the process, right? Uh, We have Uriah who comes home from battle and is given free leave to go back to his family. And Uriah says, no, the ark and all of Israel are camped out in tents. They are fighting a battle. My commander, Joab, right? He speaks specifically of this man with, uh, with respect. He says, he's out in the field. I will not take these luxuries, the very luxuries that David is taking and many more right? So we, we see this stark contrast between David's action. And, you know, I don't know if this was a term in circles you walked, but like this idea of a slippery slope, you know, once you start down it, uh, how do you stop? And David is in this. I mean, this is a downward spiral. The decisions he made, starting with something as simple as I'm not going to war with my own people, uh, and developing into seeing a woman and lusting after her and taking him, taking her uh, to his bed, and then trying to cover up the fact that she's pregnant, it's getting worse and worse, and it will continue to get worse and worse. What do you do when sin is about to be exposed? Right? What do you do uh, in in those moments when you know your darkest secrets have the potential to get out? Well, in the story of David, he'll take it to a whole nother level. In verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it with Uriah. 
In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. David has moved from lust to acting out uh, to sexual abuse and now to murder. Uh, the story has spiraled absolutely out of control. <clears throat> and I can't help but notice the irony as David sins with Uriah, his death sentence, that Uriah will carry the letter to his commander, whom he trusts and respects, the letter that will have him killed in battle. Uriah, who acted upright and cared deeply for the people around him, will lose his life because of the greed of the king. Excuse me. So Uriah fell in battle. A message is sent back to David, and uh, in verse 26, uh, David has told the messengers, it's okay, people die in battle. But of course, this was of his own devising. Verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. That feels like an understatement. Does it not? The thing he had done displeased the Lord. It's something. It's something. Uh, to say that God was watching and that God uh, it declares, uh, or, or the narrator on the place of God declares, this is not good. This is not okay. David has done everything wrong that I could imagine in this text. Um, from sexual assault to murder, David has committed it all. And I can't help but thinking as I read through this text that um, David is responsible for his actions, not someone else. There's no question about that. But that there's multiple other people in this text that are complicit with the things that are happening. You see, when unbalanced power structures exist, they aren't created out of nowhere. They aren't created even by a single individual, but usually it is a system that creates the capacity for, for instance, a king to have the, this kind of power, that he can have people killed and take their wives, right? And so who was complicit in the, the power structures at play? We certainly see the messengers sent to bring Bathsheba to him, uh, the very ones that knew, no, this is the daughter of, and this is the wife of Uriah, right? We see uh, Joab, whom one of his soldiers who respected him highly carries out the essentially the execution of this man. We see people complicit in it, and I want to turn this question back on myself and maybe on us together, but I want to turn this question back. In what ways are we complicit in um, in unbalanced power structures and systems around us. Um, you know, recently, over the past decade or so, there's been more and more women coming out about sexual harassment in their workplaces. 
And often, like uh, artists have sometimes portrayed Bathsheba, our media or our questions or our callousness cause us to portray the women in those scenarios as the problems. But I don't think this is the case in, in the vast majority of the cases. There were unbalanced power structures that allowed men to take advantage of situations and people in these workplaces in which these women were given no voice and no opportunity to speak up for themselves. And now finally, sometimes decades later, uh, we're beginning to hear these stories. These, um, these unchecked power systems, they play out all around us, I believe. They play out in what happens in businesses, as we just discussed. It plays out in politics uh, in our nation and in many other nations. Uh, it plays out sometimes in our families, where unfair and unequal power structures are created within our families, and it happens in our churches. And the result in the story of David is tragic, uh, but I think these things are happening all around us. And again, I want to, I want to ask this question. Have I ever been complicit in allowing these power structures to exist? In which people are able to be harmed, in which people's voices are taken from them to the extent that they cannot stand up for themselves, that they have no voice, no ability to cry out, no ability to resist the harm that is taking place in their lives. May it not be so. May we be people who use our voice to create structures in this society that do not give unchecked power to individuals, but instead balance that power. You know, when, when we begin this church, uh, uh, Sarah and I had a lot of dreams about a diverse and beautiful people coming together to worship together, and it was uh, not long into our journey that we realized a need um, in our egalitarian posture that is inviting men and women to participate equally, that we need we needed to balance the power structure in the church. It's the reason that we play a co-lead pastoral role Um uh, that, that, that we create st- structure powers or that we create a uh, structure that prevent power from being abused by people. It's the reason we work in committees and teams. Uh, I'm curious as you reflect on your workplace and the things happening around you, uh, what do the power structures look like in the places that you work? Now, we won't always be able to immediately correct them, right? Some of us could look and say, in my workplace or in uh, the politics that I'm involved in, this is inequitable. This is not a healthy power structure. And we might have very little ability to change the power structure itself. But we do have a voice, right? We do have the ability to speak on the behalf of people who might not have a voice or the ability to speak for themselves. So there's this story in Scripture. I I want to start to bring this in and and say, so what does the text challenge us to? Um, There's this story uh, in, in Scripture where Jesus uh, he was being tested by the Pharisees and Sadducees, and, and they're trying to trap him in his words. They're trying to get him to break Jewish laws and say this is unimportant to, to discredit him. And, um, and they bring this woman who had been caught in adultery. 
um, as they, they, they'd found her in the act of committing adultery, and they brought her to Jesus. And they say, now, the law says she has to be killed. She has to be stoned. That's a consequence for having committed adultery. There's this very interesting uh, little piece of the story that sometimes we miss. She wasn't committing adultery alone, right? And yet the man was not brought on trial in this scenario, just the woman, right? And, um, and so here's the fascinating thing. She is both in this situation, the offender, having committed adultery, and the victim of a power structure that was taking, uh, that, that was operating um, in inequitable ways, right, between the man and the woman involved in the story. She was both uh, the victim and the offender. And here's what Jesus does to the victim that she is in this scenario. Jesus says to the people around him, hey, whoever's without sin, you can cast the first stone, right? And the people slowly start to walk away. Uh, none of them could claim that status. And the fascinating thing about the story is then she's left standing in front of Jesus, whom I understand to be sinless, the sinless man that could throw that first stone standing in front of her. And he says, go, sin no more. Right to the victim, Jesus advocated on her behalf. And even where there was law that it would be right that she would lose her life, Jesus will not throw the stone, but instead invite her to redirect her course, her life, and do something different. So to the victim, he advocates. And, and or I'm, yes, yes, to the victim. And to the, uh, and to the offender, he forgives. And he redirects, right? To the victim, he advocates on her behalf. And to the offender, he forgives and he redirects. So what do we take from this story of David? I think there's some important cautionary pieces, like how is this going to shape my life? It's not by accident that Scripture tells us to run from sexual sin. Like if David had seen this on his rooftop and left and been done with it, none of this would have spiraled to be. Right? Uh, there's a reason that scripture tells us to run from sexual sin. And for some of us in the room today, it's time to start running. Right? It's time to, to, to move away from the temptations and the things that we just dip our toes in. Right? It's okay. Just this little bit and yet it spirals out of control in our lives. So I think there's a cautionary tale in, in the story of David. There's also this caution of walking in God's plan and God's will for life, because in the story of David, had he been on the battlefield again, none of this would have transpired. Had, had he been playing his role as the king of Israel, this wouldn't have transpired in the same way, and yet here he is sitting on the couch looking out over his palace at interesting things. So there's this caution to, to walk within God's plan, and I know sometimes Christianity feels really restrictive. It's like all these rules or ways I have to live, but I just want to redirect that thought and say, God invites us to a better way of life. Like, to walk in God's will and his plan for my life brings such a shield against the harm that could exist, right? To walk in God's way is a beautiful enriching, life-giving way to operate in this life. And finally, I think we see a cautionary tale in, in the story of David here about 
what I sometimes have heard called king culture. And this is power structures that allow individual people uh, to have uh, great power and for others to be subject to them in ways that can be incredibly harmful, in ways that can be and often are abused. So as we explore the text today and as we place ourselves in the shoes of characters in this text and say, God, what do you have for me in this? Like, what, what are you, how are you trying to shape me? What, what are you trying to teach me in this tragic story of David and Bathsheba? Um, to the victim, uh, we see this. Uh, Jesus advocates, and there is a community of support and healing that we are invited to participate in. If today uh, you find yourself resonating as a victim from something like this, or maybe something entirely different, but as a victim, I want you to know that we care deeply. Jesus, God, cares deeply about the hurt and the pain that we carry from the things that have been done to us. And I want us to hear that in Jesus there is hope. Not to say that healing is easy, not to belittle the things that we have been the victim of, but to say that we are invited to new hope in this life. And it will begin with conversation and prayer and healing and inviting God into these places of our lives that we have been wounded. On the flip side of that, we have the character of David, the offender, the one guilty. And if we are anything like the crowd of people that Jesus stood before when a woman caught in adultery was brought to him, none of us would get to throw the stone either, right? Uh, All of us are guilty in our lives, and some of us carry the weight of tremendous guilt, and some of us less so. But to the guilty, we have this, and Sarah read it in Psalm chapter 51 earlier, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. If you find yourself sitting in that place of guilt today, and we probably all are, I know I I feel the weight of it in my life, we read today, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You see, this was the story of Jesus to the woman who was also the offender. Forgiveness and redirection. Will we choose a new way in life? God, will you restore joy uh, in the salvation, in the forgiveness that you are giving us in our lives? And will you grant us a willing spirit? Will you sustain me? in this life. God, forgive our transgressions. Let's pray together. God, we come to you today uh, in light of a heavy text. God, a man who's considered so great and righteous in many ways has committed the most atrocious of acts. Um, And uh, God, I pray that as we process, you will give us a spirit to, uh, to hear from your word, uh, to allow it to transform us. Father, may this be a caution in our lives. May we walk in your will and your ways, and in doing that, avoid uh, the sort of devastation and tragedy that we see in this text. And Father, for those of us that have been victims of power or of people that had influence, God, I pray uh, for healing and life.
I pray for the courage to speak up um, uh, on, our, on our own behalf. I pray for a community of people to surround with love and with hope. Uh, God, give us courage to engage where we have been harmed, that, that we can know the healing that you bring. God, as we go from here today, I just ask that you will uh, give us eyes to see um, power and hurt uh, and opportunity uh, in our nation, in our workplaces, in our families, in our day-to-day lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So friends, I'll close with this brief benediction. After a really challenging text that I hope we've done justice to, I do want to remind you we're open for conversation. I'll close with this benediction. So may we walk in God's ways. May we stand against abuses of power. May we find repentance and new direction when we stray. And may we find he- healing when we're hurt. Friends, have a blessed week.